0: Welcome to Hell Week. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast, and welcome to Hell Week. This is our new series that JP and I put together for rising interns, and actually for anybody who's interested in our training programs. This is a consolidated series to try to get you ready, all the things you need to know in order to be a training neurosurgeon. Hi everybody, JP here. The usual disclaimers.
1: The information in this podcast does not constitute medical advice. The opinions expressed are our own and don't reflect those of any institution or professional organization. But perhaps most importantly, we're going to loosen up a little for this series. So expect some constructive advice, some controversial stories, but most importantly,
0: get ready to learn. Now, let's get started. welcome to the neurosurgery podcast i want to welcome you to our series on hell week training beyond neuro boot camp and this is going to be the first of many episodes to get people ready to be neurosurgeon in training for this series i'll just note that it's just me and jp so we can have a conversation and we are recording these remotely uh, during the uh, coronavirus pandemic so i wanted to get to this topic that's going to be maybe the first thing you're going to be assigned to do when you're a house officer as a neurosurgeon which is seeing your first consult. So, you know, I'm 20 years into this, so I'm gonna ask JP to to first walk us through what are the mechanics of a consult? And for those of you who don't know, a consult is when basically you're being called, often in the middle of the night, to come down and see a patient, maybe in the hospital, maybe in a clinic, maybe in the ER, which is the most common, to evaluate them and formulate an opinion and a treatment plan. So JP, walk us through how that actually happens. You, You get a call or a page and then what happens.
1: Sure. So you get a call or a page. And if you're a new intern, the first thing that happens is your blood pressure spikes and you clench up and you have that oh crap moment. And so in in the immortal words of the house of God, I would say, take your own pulse, take a breath, calm down. There's a reason that you have a senior on the other end of the phone who you're going to talk to shortly. And there's a reason that they're allowed to be at home within 30 minutes of the hospital You know, if if anything needs to be done for this patient, it doesn't need to happen in 30 seconds. So take a moment to center yourself, be calm, uh, call back the page number and and speak with whoever's on the other end of the phone. It's going to be the emergency department. It's going to be the the trauma team. If you're at a trauma hospital, it's going to be somebody on a medical floor who had a change in status prompting some imaging, hopefully. Um, And so just get ready for whatever's on the other end of the phone. If at your hospital, the uh, consult page comes with the patient information and a medical record number before calling back, I like to open the patient's chart and kind of acquaint myself with what's going on first. Um, you know, if the if it's the emergency department and they already have a note open, you can see, oh, it's a back pain consult. Hopefully they already have some imaging that you could pull up. And so you can just orient yourself and, and kind of know what things to be thinking of, what questions to have. Are ready to ask when you actually call back for the formal consult. Um, so once you're centered, you're set, you have whatever information you have ready, call back and speak to the doctor who called you. Um, hopefully, though this is not always the case, they've seen the patient, hopefully they've examined the patient and hopefully they uh, know something about them to tell you so you don't just have to chart check and then do a bunch of homework on the back end. Um, Unfortunately, this day and age, it it varies between hospitals. But a lot of the times, um, you know, if somebody came into the emergency department and they were pending some imaging before they called neurosurgery and then they had a shift change, the new ED resident who's taking care of that patient may not have seen them. So they just, you know, in sign out, they were told, oh, when that MRI gets read, call neurosurgery. So then they don't really have much to tell you about the patient. You just have to go by the chart. And, you know, when you go see the patient yourself, that's going to become increasingly frustrating for you. Um, so just breathe, stay calm, stay professional. and no, let on me on.: you, JP.
0: So in your institution, do they give you some indicator of the urgency of the consult? Do you get some intel like, oh, this is, you got to come right now, or it's, you got 20 minutes, you got an hour, or do you have to call somebody to figure that out?
1: So the consulting physician will usually give a sense of urgency. But our policy at Rush is every consult is urgent. We see every consult immediately or as soon as possible. We staff it immediately or as soon as possible. Um, because, you know, with neurosurgical patients and neurosurgical disease, um, other specialty trained physicians who don't work in this world a lot may not have the same sense of acuity as we do. So anytime we're called for anything, we treat it as urgent and we don't you know, rule out anything scary until we've seen and examined the patient ourselves.
0: Yeah. And just as an aside, what we're talking about right now, and there's different ways you're consulted, we're talking about when you're starting, usually it's going to be an in-house consultation, meaning it's, you're not usually asked to make decisions when you're starting about people you're never going to see or whatnot, which is what you do as an attending, right? You get called about stuff. You got to make choices without even seeing the people sometimes, but you're talking about a scenario where someone is calling and physically, you're going to meet this patient, right? So you're going to have that opportunity, right?
1: Yep. This is Frontlines Neurosurgery, where you are the eyes and ears of your service. And as we're going to talk about in a subsequent episode, it's, it's your job to go see this person, assess them thoroughly, and communicate that um, to your senior resident, to your superiors on the team as accurately and honestly and efficiently as you can. Because by and large, if you're alone in the hospital, you may be the only person to see this uh, patient from the neurosurgery team.
0: Okay. So you may or may not have some basic intel. You you may or may not have spoken to somebody, but you know that there's a patient. You know there's a location. There's some general guidelines. So now you go actually see the patient. Maybe you've reviewed imaging. Maybe they haven't had imaging. But you go see them. So what do you do, JP?
1: So... I, um, when I go see people, I try to, again, know as much as I can about them going in. So I am more attuned for things to look for. Um, but I go in, I introduce myself politely. Um, hopefully they speak English, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you know, I, I let them know right off the bat, my name, what team I'm with and why I'm coming to see them. Um, and then I, I like to let them tell me what's going on and try to get the story from them as much as possible. Um, oftentimes. If you do have a backstory going in, you can kind of guide their story with some pointed questions, but for at least some part of the interview, I I want to let them talk freely. Um, Obviously, you don't have all the time in the world, but I think if you give people a chance to tell you what's wrong, um, you're going to glean some information that you may not bring out of them if you just ask pointed and directed questions.
0: So, you know, there's so many kinds of consults, right? And the ones that always are the most terrifying are the ones where you're called down to the ER and there's a trauma and there's seven services surrounding the patient. You know, general surgery is doing chest compressions, putting a chest tube in, and you're being called in now, right? They've already called you, right? And so now you're sort of standing on the side, the ER docs, the general surgeons are doing their thing. How do you approach that type of situation?
1: Yeah. So this is hard when you first start out because you're used to having been a student, you're barely a doctor now. Um, and as a neurosurgical intern, you're usually functioning at the level of, uh, a very senior resident, a fellow, or even an attending from other specialties. And in situations like that, when there's seven teams surrounding a patient who's crashing, if they called neurosurgery for that patient, then they need a neurosurgical evaluation. So don't be afraid to get in there, get at the head, um, you know, check if it's a pu- if it's a trauma. Check your pupils. Get your neurologic exam. You know, be vocal, be loud. Don't be rude. But if they called you, then obviously in, in a trauma setting, a neurosurgical evaluation is one of the most important things. So get in there and get your exam, so you can call your senior in case they need to come in and, and operate.
0: Yeah, I you know I always like to think about this as you know this is why in medical school they didn't just want the people with the highest. MCAT scores, right? I think communication is really important. This is where folks that are are able to uh, you know, be social and have already, it helps to have already known the general surgeons, like they're your buddies, right? You already know them and you hang out with them and you're not just this guy who comes in they've never met, right? It really helps.
1: Right. But I mean, oftentimes you, and especially when you're a new intern, you haven't met anybody usually. Um, and so it helps to have some of that social IQ and that Uh, confidence to walk up to a stranger and just politely introduce yourself and and get in there because everyone thinks that what they're doing is the most important thing and we think that what we're doing is the most important thing so sometimes you have to jockey and fight a little bit to get the 30 seconds or 60 seconds of access to the patient that you need to assess them because here is a a pearl of wisdom for you new interns do not call your senior and try to staff a consult if you haven't examined the patient yet.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, like some interns are going to wait too long. They're going to try to get all the data, and, in, and the patient's like herniating, and they're still they're like, well, let's get another CT or whatever, right? And then other people are going to call before they even see the patient, right? So what's what's the balance? I mean, it requires judgment, doesn't it?
1: It does require judgment. It requires a social IQ of its own, and it's, I think, going to vary not just with the department culture, wherever you're in residency... But in the relationship you have with your senior, who's the senior on call that you're going to, you know, end up calling on the phone and telling them about the the patient. And so early on when you're starting out, I wouldn't be afraid to ask like, hey, this is my first night alone. Can you just in general, like what's the threshold to call you about something? When do you want to hear about things as much as you can in advance? But mostly you're going to develop this relationship with your senior over time and and you'll learn this is when I should call. This is what I should call about this is what he's going to want to have done already. And also as the year goes on, you'll be more confident knowing the next step and doing that so you won't need to call as early. But right out of the gate and even in, in general moving forward, if you're unsure whether or not to call someone, that's probably a time to call someone. Kind of like in the operating room, if you think you contaminated yourself, you did. If you're on the fence about calling, I would err on the side of calling earlier and giving more information because they can always say Hey, I didn't need to know that, and that's much better than the next morning saying, "Oh God, why didn't you tell me that?" Right? Yeah.
0: I think I think in Rush they they immerse you like Trial by Fire more than Miami. In Miami, I know that for the first uh, couple months, the interns take call with a uh, PGY two or PGY three, so they're in house together. They see the consults together, which is a little easier transition, I think. Um, but on the other hand, it kind of softens them a little bit because that. Absolute fear galvanizes you, right, JP? It really forces you to learn very quickly.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah, at Rush, as as interns, we take a solo call at Cook County, which has a lot of traumas that come in overnight. And then we start overnight call at Rush Main Hospital as twos. So there's somewhat of a a buildup and getting used to being alone in the hospital before we're alone in the big house.
0: Yeah, so I can tell you my first night on call at USC was 1996. I came in it was uh, it was uh, end of june it was like june 28th or something like that and i came on and there were three simultaneous we call rbs red blankets which means uh, at usc what happens is at the county hospital if someone needs to go right to the or no stopping they throw a red blanket on them and they go right yeah. up to the uh, 15th floor or, or and there were already two simultaneous going on mike lefkowitz who was the outgoing chief who's now at long island was doing a case uh, udi mendel was doing one with, I think it was Sanjay Ghosh. And another case came in with an epidural hematoma. And I was at the doctor's dining room and Udi Mendel, who's my chief, uh, when I started, he took a napkin out, never forgets, took a napkin out. and He took a pen out and he drew the side of a profile of the head. He said, you're going to take this person up and you're going to do the incision like this and put the bone flap here. And luckily I'd already done lots of craniotomies, but it's terrifying the first time you're the point guy.
1: And so I, I think uh, whether it's, you know, a first call cranny or just being alone in the hospital for the first time, I would rely on the confidence of your superiors and just trust that you were picked for this field in this job and they wouldn't leave you alone if they didn't think that you could stand up to it. So whatever solace or reassurance or confidence you can draw from that, just know that you wouldn't be left alone with that responsibility if it weren't safe and a, and a doable job. And that every year, everybody goes through this with you.
0: Now, what about your resources? So let's say you get a call about, um, you know, like a failed lumboperineal shunt. Okay. And, you know, you've never seen this in medical school, right? It's a kind of a boutique kind of thing, but it happens. What do you do? Do you read up on it before you go see the console? Do you do you call people for information? How do, you, how do you approach that? What do you read if you're reading? Yeah, I mean, if if
1: that were me and, you know, it's, it's a shunt failure case, so I would try to get a sense from the, again, from the consulting service and from the chart, you know, how acute is this? What What's the patient's status? But probably you have a chance to pull up at least one resource quickly if it's something you've never heard of before. And that can be very helpful if you have, say, a, a PDF of Greenberg on your phone or, um I guess a small plug the cns has an app called the neurosurgery survival guide which is pretty useful It has some procedures and some basic information in it but just whatever you use and whatever um, your residency team advises that you use take a minute to pull up if it's some new pathology you've never heard of just so you know what to look for on exam like maybe even if it's just a regular ventricular peritoneal shunt um if you've never assessed one of those patients before Maybe you don't know where all the scars are to check to make sure there's not a wound breakdown. Maybe you don't know to run along the tract of the catheter and look for any erosions. Maybe you don't know to pump uh, the shunt valve. So all these little things that your senior is going to ask you about when you call them, if you know ahead of time to check those things, one, you look better on the phone. And two, you save yourself a trip back to go back and, oh, I have to check for that and see the patient again. Oh, I have to check for that and see the patient again. So if you can take a second to... You know know what you're looking for when you go in, you can streamline the whole experience.
0: Now, this, there's, a, there's a point of efficiency that's important here too. What do you do when you're, and I don't know if you use pagers or not, but your pager's blowing up. So you get a consult, you're in the middle of seeing something like a brain tumor, and you're, and this happens all the time, and your pager goes off and you're called to the emergency room to see a uh, epidural hematoma or subdural hematoma, and you're called again, about somebody on the ward, how do you how do you prioritize? I mean you're you're dealing with like n- numerous you want to call them emergencies or urgencies and everybody wants your attention, right? How do you manage that?
1: Well I think you have to within your own mind and within the bounds of your experience, which is going to be limited if you're a new intern, you have to try to prioritize things um to some extent but the minute you're feeling overwhelmed or if you think there are multiple patients that are potentially operative uh, the right answer is always to just call for help. Probably you're alone in the hospital overnight, but at the very least, if you that would be a situation I think to call your senior earlier because you don't want somebody to get hurt. And just say, you know, I have an epidural hematoma right now. I have a stroke. I have a potential carotid equina. It's just me. Here's what I know about each of them, and and just you know ask for either if not manpower support then. You know, who should I see first?
0: Yeah, but I'm going to push um, back a little, JP, because we've all been there dozens of times. And if you're the resident that every time it looks like there's a little bit of stuff that's kind of overwhelming you, you're calling everybody in, you will be ostracized from your residency program because every neurosurgeon lives with that, right? I know I know. for party line, we're saying, okay, don't hurt patients, call for help. But the reality is if you're a resident that you got more than five consults in one night and you're calling other people, you're not going to survive the program
1: probably. Right. Oh,
0: of course not. Of the and I, in a night, right. So, I guess my point was, if it takes you six hours to see a consult, if it takes you an hour to see a consult, you're probably going to be overwhelmed every night.
1: Oh yeah, and that's that's. I mean, that phone call is not a move that you can use maybe more than once, right? And that that's something where you 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 pull that out of your uh, toolkit once, and you better learn from that night. Here's how to stratify things. But as you said, the party line answer has got to be don't let anybody get hurt. But uh, kind of as you suggested there, the, the better solution is if you're seeing a brain tumor patient and you get called with an epidural, you're standing in front of the brain tumor patient, convince yourself that they're stable because you're looking at them, and then go see the epidural. And then if there's a equina, see the epidural, see if they're stable or not, get to know what you need to know and call your senior, then go see the Um You can stratify things in your mind and you can increase your efficiency where maybe you're not as thorough and deep into the details of their history or whatever but you at least know this is their status this is what they need done next boom 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 see the next consult
0: yeah it's so it's such a hard job and and it's just the first introduction to being a neurosurgeon and you know there's this problem and we're going to go over this again and again in this series of episodes about um about what happens when you're in training. And, and we're going to talk about honesty, and that's that's a very important piece. But another thing that happens to residents is this ability to compartmentalize and get the work done without cutting too many corners. And there's a, there's a very well-known USC graduate who's a chairman now who was famous because he was so intellectual that he was pondering cognitively about how to manage a patient while that patient herniated in front of him. And, and this is not uncommon for you research types with the, you know, 70 publications that have the amazing CV often are not the best clinicians and and that happens. And so there is this balance between no, leaving the tumor patient, as you said, being sure they're stable and saying, listen, I'm going to come back when, it's, when I can, but I've got to go deal with this now or this person's going to die. And in the middle of dealing with that dying patient, you may get another call about someone who's going paralyzed. And this ability to juggle many things in your head and prioritize. You know, it's funny because they're talking about uh you know, of course in the COVID era it's like it's like um, you know, trying to deal with a million things at once and you're overwhelmed. And but on the other hand, that happens to all of us. I'm sure it's already happened to you, Jamie.
1: Yeah, I mean not not only have I had those nights where the consoles just keep coming, there's multiple traumas at a given time, or um I actually have had a night where there was an epidural and a Supposed cauda equina at the same time, um, and, and you get through it. But I also even had an interesting experience where we have some PAs at Cook County Hospital. And one day I was operating with my chief, and the PA had the pager. Um, they went out and had a consult. They came in, and rather than staffing it with the chief, they staffed it with me to, so that I could staff it with the chief. So I had that experience that I will have increasingly later in my career where I'm standing there operating and I've got somebody behind me. Giving me the a history on a patient, and you have to focus on what you're doing, but you have to listen with them and make decisions and tell them what to do next. Um, And that is life within neurosurgery, as you say. You're you're always going to be doing multiple things at once.
0: So so let's finish up with something else that is really the integral uh, an integral part of this, which is the Monday Monday morning quarterbacking after the consult. So in other words, it's two forty a.m. You go see somebody. You formulate a plan, you may have or may not have discussed it with other people, and by the morning, the situation is viewed differently, or it actually is different, or there's new information, right? And then all your co-residents are standing around looking at this, and they, they're looking at it like you fucked it up, right? Because they have more information than you had, or they're better rested, or they're smarter, or whatever, right? Or the situation changed. You've run into that, haven't you? Oh, yeah. So how do you deal with that, it, 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 practically and emotionally?
1: Practically, you uh, you know you take the lashing if there's lashing, you take the criticism if there's criticism, and you learn from it. And if you did make a mistake or miss something, you don't do that again. Um, emotionally, you develop thick skin. There's differences in personalities in every field, and there's all sorts of personalities within neurosurgery. If you actually missed something because you're a brand new intern and and you don't know everything yet, some people will. You know, kindly teach you. Some people will ride you about it. Um, if it's a case where it wasn't your fault, you didn't miss something. There's just more information later, but you're still being criticized as if it was your fault. You just have to take it. Um, that that's unfortunately the reality of life. Not just with a neurosurgery. That's just life. Um, and I think that's good preparation for the rest of your life and career. Developing some stoicism, developing a poker face, and, you know, just developing that intellectual and emotional rigor to just face what life gives you, whether or not it feels fair, whether or not it feels pleasant, uh, to just take what you're given, learn from it what you can, and move on.
0: Yeah, I, I I will say something that'll probably get me in a lot of trouble, but this is one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of social justice types in our field, because I think it's a lot like When you're a police officer and anybody can look back and say, oh, you you fucked that up or you should have handled it differently or someone got hurt because of what you did. But in the heat of the moment, and it's not just adrenaline, it's it's not just about that. There are so many things. I mean, if you had a had a time machine and a crystal ball, you'd never be wrong. Right. And and we're always wrong. Right. You're wrong all the time. And if you're not you don't think you're wrong, you're not paying attention. Hopefully you're not wrong in a way that really hurts somebody. But that's going to happen, too. And that's just the nature of our business. And I hate people who say, you know, like Jacob, right? Uh, joint commission say like, that's a zero event. What, zero, zero, what do you mean zero events? Like that should never happen. It's like, really? Things happen, right? And and that's what you learn as a neurosurgeon is that you have to function in this environment where everybody, including other neurosurgeons are going to second guess you. And you have to live with the results and not be a sociopath. And that yeah. that is maybe why people have such incredible respect for what we do and we don't ever want to lose that. So it's a high responsibility.
1: Yeah. And I I think something you, you touched on there tangentially, um, when you say that we're always wrong, we're wrong all the time. And I, I think that that is such an important insight that many of the personalities that get attracted to neurosurgery may not share You know, we're going to, we've talked in many episodes and we'll talk again about egos within neurosurgery, but I think certainly intern year will teach you, if you didn't already know, uh, to be humble because you're living in a constant state of error and a constant state where you don't have control over what's happening. So if you be mindful of that, then you will be on the lookout for your own mistakes. You'll be on the lookout for your own slips. And so hopefully even if uh, they, they still happen, you'll catch them, and then eventually they'll happen less and less frequently. And, yeah, yeah, right. And when you interact with the patient, you, you'll know that even if you can't come in and wave a magic wand and make them better, the amount of control you do have over their outcomes, uh, you'll, you'll maximize that. And you'll appreciate that even if you're just shifting a probability curve slightly, um, you'll know exactly how much you can do for someone if you acknowledge that you can't do everything for them.
0: Yeah, be humble, but be arrogant, right? Because I'll t- I'm gonna finish with a, a little anecdote. Last year, we had a visiting professor out here, a guy from Europe, and, and I have a lot of opinions about Europe. Um, but anyhow, this guy was a brain tumor expert. And he got up there and had the, 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 ten- the veracity or the gumption to say that his, and this is malignant tumors, he says his complication rate was something like 1% in his surgeries. Wow. And and I'm like, this guy is full of shit. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Like, you know, Marty Weiss used to say, right, the people who don't have complications, they're either not operating, they're too stupid to recognize a complication when they get one, or they're liars. And I don't know which one this guy is. He's a famous guy. But the reality is half those people die, right? So maybe you misclassified them. Right. They die. Yeah. that's the point of it. the average survival is nine months. Maybe you get the occasional survival. But this guy was selling a bill of goods and and to, he, to have young people hear that and then turn around and say, well, maybe we're just idiots in Miami. And there is like they're selling the snake oil in Europe. And I think about my own case series. And I get very depressed sometimes. You, know, you go to m M&M, and you get three complications. And, I, you know, I do 500 cases a year or so, 480 or something like that. And so if I have a three percent complication rate, which is extremely low. That's 15 complications a year. That means every month I have at least one, if not two or more. And that's just, that's my complication rate. Isn't just 3%. Anybody who, who's telling you it's something ridiculously low is just not honest. And so you're, you're living in this world where you're surrounded by these other people who are going to look at you and tell you things and make you feel bad about yourself. And it's hard to be honest with yourself when other people aren't honest with you themselves right i mean we live in this ecosystem of surgeons right yeah so anyways good luck with your consults out there and uh we will be following up this with many other episodes to get you geared up uh for your start as a neurosurgeon congratulations again on matching
1: and stay tuned for more episodes of hell week beyond boot camp